Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, Jim. Uh, in this episode, uh, Chill and I are going to really focus on the BFI, British Film Institute, Sight and Sound uh, movie poll that came out in December. But this is going to be our first kind of deep dive into it. Uh, and so for those who don't know, the Sight and Sound magazine is a quarterly film review published by the BFI, the British Film Institute. They started their poll of the top films of all time in 1952. The poll then was made up of 10 films ranked by a group of international film professionals and directors. Uh, The first film ranked number one was Battleship Potemkin and was named mostly by a group of film directors. And then they did a follow-up poll right afterwards uh, of critics. But then only 63 responded because the critics thought that the question was unfair. Um, and, and I think that's an argument that can hold today. The fact that trying to make a list of best movies, it, it's very subjective film. And so everybody has an opinion. And what's best, I think, is really going to be a theme that we're going to explore through this episode of what is best, what is great. And the Critics' first list, Bicycle Thieves, was the top. So every decade since then, um, so since it was 1952, it's been every 10 years, and that's why it's a two instead of, uh, you know, at at the zeros. Uh, But every decade since, sight and sound polls, critics and directors, uh, usually it's a small group to determine the top 10 films. And from 1962 all the way to 2002, Citizen Kane, which everybody's pretty familiar with, whether they've seen it or not, uh, has remained at the top of the list. That's probably the first time I was ever made aware of the list was when I went to film school. People mentioned how, oh, Citizen Kane, this is regarded as the greatest film of all time. In 1992, uh, Sight and Sound began a separate poll for critics and directors. And the choice for top film on both lists was Citizen Kane. Now, in 2012, after years of criticism and the lack of diversity in its poll participants, the BFI opened the poll up to 846 critics, up from 145. And this marked the first time film programmers, curators, archivists, and film historians got a chance to weigh in. And for the first time in decades, a new champion was crowned, Vertigo, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. And that had always been highly rated, hit the number, uh, you know, the tens many times. But this was the first time that it hit all the way up to one. So clearly, the additional critics made a difference. Um, An additional element to the 2012 poll was for the first time, the BFI published not only the results of the top 10 films, but they released a list of the top 100 on both the directors and critics' polls. And then they follow that up with a list of the top 250 critics' choices. That brings us to 2022, with the new poll of 100 films, which was released at the beginning of December. The number of participants for the critics' choices nearly doubled from 846 to 1,639. Um, And now, in a move that has proven pretty controversial and potentially, I think, undermines the legitimacy of the Sight and Sound poll, the BFI hired film scholar uh, Garish Shambu to consult on how to put the poll together and how the voting should go. Shambu, who in his own film writing bemoans the historical lack of women filmmakers in cinema, He charged participants to look at diversity and women filmmaker inclusion in the poll. 
um, with what I believe are only 10 film choices per participant, including mandates on those choices one can submit to the poll undermines the purpose of seeking out the best films of all time. I mean, to me, it calls into question what makes a great film, and it politicizes a decades-long tradition. So the result of this decision by Shambu and the BFI has certainly created a shakeup in the 2022 list. Uh, more representation is evident throughout the top 100, and recently they've released a top 250 of these films for critics. Uh, but perhaps in a miscalculation of the mandate, the number one film of all time, according to critics and film scholars, is the not well-known 1975 Brussels film by legendary late feminine auteur filmmaker Chantelle Ackerman. Her film, Jean Delmont, 23 Quad du Commerce 1080, it, it kind of sticks out as a sore thumb that a film that would be a hard sit for most any film goer would rank at the top of the list. Uh, two other film choices that received notable reactions from people reviewing this list of choices uh, ranked at number 30 was French filmmaker Celine uh, Siama's 2019 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is an amazing film, and there's no question about that. The question I have is more of a matter of timing. You know, should a film from so soon as 2019 jump all the way to number 30 on the list of best films of all time? I mean, could enough critics have decided that all their years of film watching, this film is one they regard as one of their 10 best? Or is something else going on here? The same question comes with a film that squeaked in at number 100 on the critics' poll, Jordan Peele's revisionist horror genre film from 2017, Get Out. It's not a film I particularly feel is very great. Uh, I recognize that others, mainly younger filmgoers and critics like it, but it, it, to me, again, it's a more of a question of time. Uh, perhaps the BFI should consider not including films from the decade in between polls just to allow films time to marinate and you know perhaps if after 10 years or so they're still fresh in critics minds then maybe maybe they're great so in the end uh, films are subjective and even if we don't agree with all the selections in the two different top 100 lists and now this larger 250 critics list what we do have to pick over are 250 movies that are guaranteed to be unique in their own ways and perhaps will serve as a good foundation for building up one's own film history and knowledge. That's my introduction to the BFI Top 250. Now, for the remainder of this episode, good old co-host, the most, Teal, and I are going to talk more in depth about this list. We're going to come back to it from time to time over the year, but I think uh, this starter episode, while we may reference the director's list and select films from the entire 250 list, our primary focus for this episode is really going to be on the top 100, since until recently, that's all we had to review and focus our attentions on. So, uh, in the great words of uh, director Marty DeBerge, enough of my yakking. <laughs> it's time for Teal. Okay. Hello. Wow. Okay. That was a great introduction. Thanks. Uh, a question that you brought up that I think we'll just probably keep coming back to throughout these conversations. I think it's going to be more than one episode because there's so many films here and there's so much to talk about. Uh, but the question that you brought up is, you know, what is great? And yes, it's subjective, but at the same time, we have all these other external influences. We may have politics. We have our own biases. And, you know, I think some people would argue that the list has always been political. 
and that those people that were not on the list were marginalized by the whoever was dominating the list. I would assume probably white men, right? And largely American and French white men. You know, it's tough because for decades, all we got was 10. And, yeah. and that list never really changed. So I think a good move was in 2012 making available the 250 slots. So you really got to see what people were talking about. Plus, I think it serves for people when they're looking over and deciding in 2022, you get to see other films that maybe you think, oh, geez, they were close than I yeah. thought, you know? Or, exactly, you know, yeah. I mean, and even, yeah, I mean, when we only had the top 10, it, it, 10 is not a lot. So do you know, you mentioned that uh, this consultant encouraged them to uh, broaden their perspective a little bit to include more women and marginalized voices. And so that was in the instructions, the voting instructions. Okay. It, it totally is. Well, it is and it isn't. All I read were like those three standouts, like Jean Delmon is now the greatest film of all time. It is called the greatest films of all time. And so <laughs> great can have a little bit of a stretched definition, I think. And so I think it can that's all, fair, I think, of you to say that. Yeah, I think I think it can because it, it's not just the film itself. I think great can also be uh, historical significance or influence or a film that really changed the dynamic of how film works. I feel like Citizen Kane did that. Now, yeah, now on that. Right. So I guess if you're like if you're asking me, like, what is my criteria for great? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Even if I, so say if I've seen a film that's on this list and I may not agree with it being on like, say the greatest 100 films, right. I might have an argument with that, but I could see it from another point of view and say, well, from a historical perspective and other things that might've been going around, it's an important film and it does something to change, say cinema language or other aspects. And it's, it's great in other people's eyes. I get it. It should go on the list. Then there's other films that I may have seen. And I'm, and I mean, I could look at it 20 different angles and I'm sorry, I'm not seeing it. And that's right. the problem that I end up having with a lot of the choices. Um, and of course, now that I see the 250, I, I have even more you right. know, head scratchers <laughs> um, because some of the movies that I saw that like, why aren't they in the top 100? Well, then once we got the full list of 250, I saw them there. And, you know, it's not like somebody is sitting there and deciding weights like this, this deserves right. to be better. I think a lot of it has to do with how many mentions did it get from the people that they submitted critics to. So it's well, really imperfect. Yeah. So like if it, like for instance, I don't know, like Citizen Kane may be a better film than Vertigo, but on the top 10 list that people filled out, Vertigo came in an X amount of times more on a list right. than Citizen and it may Kane have been, And it may have been once more. Exactly. And I won't know this until March when they're going to release the results. Okay. So we won't get into too much detail on that right now, but I was, I was wondering if you could give me an example of a film that wouldn't be on your list, but that you understand how people call it great. I, the one that popped into my mind when you were talking was uh, Buster Keaton's The General. Well, that's okay. So I think we're gonna have to take a let's step back here. Here's my history here. 
Yeah. I, I, I've, I've, you know, probably in 2012, I looked at the list, but I think I did it very much like, oh, took a quick scan, saw a whole bunch of movies that I never saw. Yeah. Some of them I'm like, I probably should see. And then it stuck in my mind that like, okay, Vertigo is now number one. And then I forgot all about it. This time, <laughs> I probably did the same thing. I was kind of shocked at John Delmon because- Now, how did, you, how did you find out about the list this time? I think you actually sent out a group text to, to me did. and Gerardo yeah. that, hey, the, 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 the list is up. So I'm like, oh, um, I, didn't even, I wasn't on my radar screen that that was coming out. So I went to take a quick look. And I was so intrigued, not only the fact that like Jean Delmon, which I hadn't seen at the time, yeah. I'd seen 15 minutes of it a couple of years ago because I was curious because of the lead actress. And over the years, it's shown up on a lot of lists. I mean, I've heard the name pop up. I really, like yeah. I said, I wasn't, and I knew it was like Chantel Ackerman. I've heard her name pop up yeah. and it came up a lot in the last few years because um, she she passed away from suicide. And so I had started it. And, it, and I knew it was like going to be a paint drying movie and not much was going to happen. And while it was intriguing, I just never got back to it. But then suddenly it's on the list and, you know. You have to. I mean, it's the best movie ever. <laughs> exactly. And I think this is where, this is my problem. And I think that it, would, it was a backfire. I don't think that they probably intended that Jean Delmont was yeah. going to end up being the number one. <laughs> well, but I feel like I feel like when you're mandated in a sense that you really got to put something on from a female filmmaker that's the name that popped up whether or not i don't even know if some of these people had seen the movie but that probably <laughs> and, and i'm going to be confirmed when i see the uh, the amount but here's the thing i got intrigued this time because i said you know what now now i can count let me count like i bet you i've seen a ton of these 100 whether i like yeah. them or not and my shock was that i'd only seen 53 of these movies Wow, and and you're you know a I, that's geek. what I'm saying. I thought I was better now. That's why I'm like, there's so many odd ducks in here. How could <laughs> I have only seen 53 of these movies? And some of them I saw because they made us watch them in film school. Right. Um, I mean, like I was like number 16, Meshes of the Afternoon. That's like that's like a 15 minute experimental <laughs> movie from Maya Darren and Alexander Hamid, and we watched that in like editing class, right? Yeah, because yeah. it's you know lots of weird stuff going on. But I'm like. That does just, just in greatest films of all time. Number 16. Okay, but do you think that's one of the ones that could you could maybe say this this is a major influence just because it's been taught so much? To it's me, like it's not a, the most important films of all time. That's not what this list says. It says greatest. And okay, I'm seeing no, it I know, 16, I'm just, I'm just, so I'm like, I, I mean, I, maybe I, I would give, I wouldn't put it on my 250, but like, okay, I might say, like, if I was making a list of 250, 250 films that like people interested in movies or film schools should see. Yeah. Maybe that'll be on there. But I mean, I'd only seen 53. So like in my letter right. grades, that's an F. <laughs> I'm an F in, 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 and now I feel like a loser. You're like sub F. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just terrible. Yeah, they're kicking me out of film school. So, this. and now I assume there were some on the list that you, uh, uh, out of the ones you hadn't seen, what was it, 47 that you hadn't seen? I assume there were some on there that you were aware of and were knew that were sort of on your bucket list but you just hadn't get around to there were several that were in my criterion queue yes. um, and i think this is a great time to to shout out to people as we talk about this list if you have if you're interested right and you go on look and you're like okay maybe by the end of this episode you're going to be interested and you want to take up the challenge and see more of these movies criterion channel is an amazing place to start because while they don't have 
all of these films on the channel. They have a huge amount of them. Um, and then when you get into the whole 250 list, they have a whole good chunk of those too. So, you know, if you just went by Criterion Channel, you could knock a bunch of these off over time. Yeah. And so I, I really recommend yeah. that's a great starting point. But but I have to say that one one movie that I really, I saw it on the list and I'm like, I have no idea what this is. This kind of started me on a journey because you watched it this movie by Abbas Karastami from 1989 yeah. called Close Up. And it's number 17 on the list. And you watched it. Yes. And then you said something like, this was an interesting movie. Yeah, I said, this is cool. It's, I said, it's worth watching. And I think I was going to be, I was like all set that I was going to like take on the Jean Delmont challenge. But <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know what? What do, what do I might be? I might be staring down the barrel of a masterpiece here. I got to watch this film. And uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it yeah. was a good movie, but there was nothing about it, in my opinion, that really just hit me as like a wowzer. Yeah. So close up is number seventeen on the list, and you know I think it's a really good movie. I enjoyed watching it. It's, it does some really interesting things in terms of examining what film is and what performance is, and the line between reality and film, and it's really interesting. Uh, I found it compelling. It was cool. I would not put it at number 17. I don't even know if it would be on my list. It's a good movie, though. From what I'm led to believe, that when you're making this list, you get 10 choices. And yeah. And so then I look in it, and that's what makes me go, ah, greatest films of all time. I only have 10 choices. Then I'm going to kind of really go with what I feel are 10 of the best films of all time. Yeah. And I think a lot of these critics and stuff they feel like that's being covered by other people. So they're going to pick 10 movies that we really think that we'd like to see on right. this list. And I think that starts to degrade what the purpose is and that maybe they should give people like, we'd like to see what you feel are the 10 greatest films of all time. And then you have another 10 that we feel are great films that we really, that you'd love to see included. And those can right. maybe be more favorites. They're still great, but that I think might be better and you might get, better results it just you know and then you have a criteria of well these got to be the greatest films but yet we also got to you have to make sure you include a woman filmmaker or uh, a filmmaker of color or something i i, I don't know it, it's such a weird thing it just it changes the the perception of what this list is to me and and so there's a lot of different ways and we'll maybe talk about this later about uh how they could maybe go about making the list more you know, if everybody had to choose 20 films, say, yeah. like you would, you know, like you were just talking about. Um, okay. So you watched Close Up. So I watched Close Up and I was already, and that, this really did transform me because it made me say, this list, like, uh, if this is 17 and this movie was just whatever, I am now really intrigued by these other choices. And I feel like if I want to critique the choices. Yeah. And, and then I watched John Delmon, right? Because I was like, yes. well, I'm going to, I can't not watch the greatest film of all time. And after watching this thing, I knew the fix was in. <laughs> I even so, wrote something about it on our site. I, I wrote a whole article yeah. on it. But but it was the combination of these two that, that suddenly it, it lit a fire under me, um, <laughs> partly because I thought that you were invested in wanting to do this. And I don't think, I think you were just like, let's see what Jim does. No, 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 no. Here, let me tell you what happened to me. Okay. I watched Close Up. I watched Mirror. Okay. 
And I was, my plan was to just kind of hit one or two of these a week and maybe, you know, in a year, get through the hundred. And I think originally I was like, hey, you know what? The next decade, I'd love to see these hundred movies. Yeah. I just kind of figured I'd whittle away at them. I'd have the list. And if I, you know, was looking for something to watch, I'd just sort of pick one at random. And then I took a break from watching movies so I could build my home theater for a month. Right. And that came right after that. And so I basically didn't watch any movies for about four or five weeks while I was building the home. You're theater. not a good multitasker. You're right. Also, when you're building a home theater, you're like, well, I don't want to watch something until I got the projector set up. Like what? Right. You want to have, you're right. You're going to watch these things and, you know, and, and mind you, I think a lot of these would benefit from a big screen experience. And, yes. you know, some of these titles are so odd that even if you can find them, you're going to watch them on TV, right? So that sort of put me, uh, slowed me down. And meanwhile, I'm working on the home theater and I keep getting text from you. <laughs> well, because I started to started to get into, I'm like, you know what? I, so I, I, I was like, you know what? I want to see how many of these 100 I can can watch. And and, and I, I found one thing that helped me was that uh, Criterion actually put up yes. a collection of the films that they had that fell in line with the top 100 directors and the top 100 critics. Uh, some of it was overlap, and then there were some right. differences where the directors picked some different movies. And, you know, I'd see the run times, and there's a few short movies, and I'm like, you know, I had this thought of like, I can increase my 53 up to more <laughs> if I watch some of these short ones, right? I get those like, you know, just low hanging fruit. I'll just knock some of those off along with like maybe watching one of these long ones like Jean Delmon. And that's what I started to do. And when I found things I liked, I would send you a message. And if I found things that I thought like, what the hell is this doing on here? <laughs> I'd send you a message and I'd keep you up to date because I figured, well, you're never going to watch maybe as many as I'm going to watch. So I should at least steer you in the right direction. Right. And that's, I think, what's great about the show we're doing today is that maybe you can steer uh, <laughs> some people clear of some of these or at least uh, or at least help them be informed, making informed choices. And- so, Jean Dillman. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to that for a second because I feel like I haven't seen it. I'm right. I, I'm not super enthusiastic about watching it. <laughs> you shouldn't it. be. I will watch it, but when I look at this list, I think, okay, say I was showing this maybe to my parents. Right. Or, you know, just a, a regular film goer, a friend of mine who says, hey, you, you, you know about movies. What, what are the best movies? And, <laughs> you know, I'm comfortable saying Citizen Kane, right? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm comfortable. Okay, go watch this. This is a pretty good movie. I feel the same way about Vertigo. Yep. Uh, and 2001 was your all-time favorite, so. 2001 was my all-time favorite movie. Of course, I can recommend, and I, you know, say that. Uh, but, you know, not having seen Jean Delman, and, and Man with Movie Cameras, number nine. I watched that last week. Absolutely loved it. Would not be in my top 10. I wouldn't put that in my, necessarily in my top 10, but I'll tell you something. I had seen part of it. I'd seen part of it completely silent with no sound, yeah. no music score, in film school it was another again in the editing class and i can't yeah. remember how much of it and watching a silent movie with nothing but the projector flipping like no sound score oh, or anything yeah. is very hard yeah um and that's how i saw meshes with the afternoon and that was like the longest 15 minutes of my life i mean just because yeah. when you don't have any sound it's tough oh it's brutal yeah but the score like there's several versions that you can watch of man with a movie camera um the score that i watched on a uh, criterion like 
this movie just it freaking blew me away and and the reasons why this one blew me away like the the stunning music with it it, it kind of just it there's that term that they use in film school the gestalt yes um and what this guy was doing it was at Zerga Vertov in 1929 uh, first of all he's in um you know what russia it was in the soviet union yep. yep and so you know he's under certain directives and, and ridiculous back then like directives and uh you know his movie was slammed for being i don't know too audacious well what's interesting is that yeah the directives were ridiculous but they became more ridiculous in the soviet union this was actually a slightly more uh liberal version of the soviet union so one of the reasons why, again, just from an historical perspective, when you watch this, you actually get to see life in Russia before things got really, really bad. Yes. And and you you so you have this like time lapse of wow, like how do they effed it all up? Right. <laughs> this movie also captures there's something about the joy of life that this movie yes. captures. There's um camera innovations that and and editing techniques. And editing techniques that like would eventually be discovered. And that was one of the things that I've discovered with some of these silent movies is that I feel like there are people that God bless them. There's these historians that they just are so afraid that people are never going to watch silent movies that they, <laughs> that they, they cling to them like a pillow and they put them on here because they're so afraid people aren't going to remember them. And I don't think they're necessarily as great. They might've been at that moment, but the problem is like, uh, you know, certain, things that people may think of a movie is great for they're not so much innovations like for instance dw griffith yeah uh, i watch one that's further down on the list i think he's going down so some of these things are starting right. to fall off i watched intolerance um the movie is ridiculous it's it's so it's so lame and i think honestly i think it's a little ridiculous even back then <laughs> i mean in 1916 but like i think that yes, Griffith may have been one of the first people to do certain things with editing and, and yeah. figuring things out on storytelling, but those things were going to get figured out. <laughs> I mean, right. And just right. because you're the first, that doesn't mean you're the best. And I think in this case, this guy was doing stuff that because things would suddenly go to sound right, and people were locked in for several years trying to figure out how do you move a camera when you, you got these microphones, there is something so freeing and exciting. Yeah. And, and not only that, he's showing you in this movie how you make and edit a movie because he has shots and then you see the person editing those shots. Yes. And how that gets put together. No one was making a movie like that. There's a little statement at the beginning of this movie about creating a new international film language. What's interesting is that some of the films from the silent era, I feel like, are just uh, movies without sound. Yeah. And the, and the music doesn't even match. It's like weird scores. <laughs> right. But my point is, like, it, it would be a scripted movie if there was sound, right? So it's, it's scenes of people talking with title cards. Man with Movie Camera is designed to be entirely silent. It's designed to be a nonverbal visual experience. And, and so it has a very different purpose as a silent film. It's not there to just tell a story. It's there to communicate with us on a very, uh, almost an unconscious level through rhythm and image and movement. And so it, it's a whole different kind of thing than your average silent film. 
Well, and another thing it does too, again, there's a lot of things that you might be like astounded as a movie trick or how does it do that? Yeah. But in this movie, like I said, there's scenes that show the editing of it, but also there's this things that that pay off like later where you yes. see them like digging a hole in the ground and then like there's a, these, these shots where like the trains got going right over them and stuff and you yes. realize that he's filming his brother he had like enlisted his yeah. brother is showing him setting up the shots that are going to be on the train and yes it's and i love that that it gives you like a you know a how to make a movie like this yeah well and like the last five minutes is sort of a montage of, of the first part of the movie yeah from different camera angles yeah, so this movie just stunned the shit out of me. I mean, it really did. It's a really cool movie, and it, I mean, it's definitely going to be on my top 100. I, when I think of greatest films, in my mind, it normally immediately goes to your like standard theatrical films. Yes, like that you see, like a 2001 Citizen Kane. You know, you go to the theater, right. you pay your ticket, and that these may be elevated films that do a little bit more. This list does make me think a little differently based on things like you know including a 15 minute film um right. the problem is that if we're going that route i think of some very short films that are just absolutely astounding and they're not on there and so it's like are these critics do they not even have their own sort of big repertoire of films that they've seen and they're relying on just these like short ones i think some of this is critical bias Right. So everyone tells you meshes of the afternoon is great. You see it in film school, you analyze it, you uh, don't watch it again for 30 years, but you're like, yep, that's one of the best films of all time. It just, you know, it kind of is earned is it's sort of like Citizen Kane. I don't know. It just throws Citizen Kane on there. Right. So I think there's some bias that film scholars and critics have based on their education and what they've been introduced to throughout their lives. And yes, maybe they've seen something better than Meshes of the Afternoon since then, but they still think, well, Meshes of the Afternoon did it first. So that, you know, really uh, set the stage for everything that came after. Well, like there's another movie on this top 10, another film I hadn't seen, but you know, when it yeah. suddenly is, it makes its appearance at number seven, I'm interested is Claire Denis' movie, Beau Travail. Yes. And you know, if you go to like IMDb and you look at critics rankings, you know, you expect there would be a hundred if it's going to be this high, yeah. but it's not. Um, and then, you know, you're starting to see, okay, well look, you know, top 10 films, greatest films of all time. Two of them are from women, but now you're starting, once you actually see the film, you're starting to feel like, mm -hmm. Hmm. This was chosen just because famous woman filmmaker, and this is her most famous film. Um, because I watched this Beau right. Travail, and I got to tell you, there's just, I mean, when we talk about great, I, I know there are people who like this for whatever reason. Um, and I'm a person who actually well, does. liking it is different. <laughs> I know, but I mean, I'm a person who likes paint drying films. Like I actually like love right. certain things and I get it. Like, so Mulholland Drive is number eight on this list yeah and i think it belongs there it's one of my top 10 favorite films I, I and i think it's one of the greatest and i can understand that somebody would say to me what that's crazy that's a horrible yeah. movie it, it yeah. i got lots it. of people feel that way i got it in a way that other people didn't get i guess and that might be the same with Bo travai but if you ever watch this film I just want, like, I'd love for you to love it and tell me why it's great because I just didn't see okay, it. So, so some of the, I, I'm going to be watching some of these films and it, specifically ones like that. If you point them out, we will have a conversation on an upcoming show about Beau Trevet. 
Yeah, I just, it has a great, like, last, like, two minutes before the credits go up uh, that I thought was amazing. And everybody, okay. it seems like that's a big thing about the movies. They love it. And it's, and I don't want to spoil any of that, but I can just tell you it really was awesome. But it's just, I guess it's like, to me, when people talk about male gaze and female gaze, right. you obviously have a uh, hundred years of male filmmakers telling, the, yes. the, you know, seeing the, looking at females. And this is a story that's extensively about male soldiers and it's got a certain look to it where it's the woman's gaze on masculinity. Right. And so, yeah, that's interesting, but it goes only so far for me. I'm sorry. Number seven right. greatest <laughs> film of all times. I ain't seeing it, man. Okay. But what about if it was in, you know, what about if it was number 152? Okay, well, now this brings up a thing. Is that So this is how critical I am. We, we mentioned that I started seeing these films. This is, I think, the time yeah. to tell the audience that I am a little bit more of an insane character. and <laughs> Than anyone knew. Starting back at the beginning of December, when this all started, uh, I went with, the, you know, watching a few films. And from beginning of December to beginning of February, I have now completed the fullest of 100. I have seen all 100 of the top critics' films. Yes, and that's what we're doing here today because you took on a challenge that I think, I, I, I mean, I'm sure some people have done it, but I, I don't, you know, there are not a lot of people jumping out and saying, you know what, I'm going to watch, because I hang out in the film geek online circles as a lurker, <laughs> and uh you know, I, I, there's been a huge amount of debate and discussion about this list, but I haven't seen anyone who said I've seen every movie on the list. Well, I don't want to say I'm better than everybody, but what I, what I would say is that if I wanted to get into an argument, I would feel personally guilty criticizing a choice if I hadn't seen them all. That's just okay, how so, I am, and that's yes. one of the reasons why I wanted to see all 100. Plus, there are movies on there that when we've had episodes in the past where we talked about, like, Guilt, guilty that they've never seen yes yes so yes on this list there's a bunch of films that i'd love to just tell people i saw but i hadn't seen and i'm like this <laughs> give, is a give great me, example give me a, a couple examples well, of okay i had heard about tokyo story forever and right. i had actually started tokyo story about three or four years ago um <laughs> and i really love the style but i just i don't know i didn't get back to it and so i did uh same thing this is probably the most embarrassing one seven samurai Oh wow! Okay, that's really embarrassing. It is right, everybody. But I feel like it's this is what I, this is my thought. My thought behind Seven Samurai is that it's one of those films that you tell people you've seen, even yeah. if you haven't, because no one's going to question you any further on. Right, and and you and the other thing is you know the story anyway. Exactly, because it's been done so many times. So you could like <laughs> if you've seen Magnificent Seven, you can just yeah. probably fake it. Um, so, like, there's things like that. And then there's, like, movies that you hear them mentioned so many times, like Ohazar Baldazar, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one of the things that I thought was a great opportunity is there are certain directors that I've seen a few of their films, but I was like, if I see all the films that are on this list, I'm going to get a few more in. And then there's some directors that I have no exposure to, like, for instance, Robert Brisson, who did yeah. uh, Ohazar Baldazar. He had a few choices. Um, and if you look at the full list of 250, he's got like four or five movies Yeah, on he's there. on there quite a few times. And also, in parallel, the director's list, which they've only given us 100. It was actually 104 due to ties. Okay. Okay. I have seen 101 of those movies. 
Oh, good. Okay. Yep. And then, of course, this you'll know this is that we I just I just literally finished the last two movies <laughs> on this list, which were really hard ones to a find and b get through because of their length. I just finished it up, and then I find out that they were uh, releasing the full 250 list at the beginning of February, and I'm like, you got to be shitting me. And, of course, now I'm like, I was like, well, look, some of these are so obscure, and they're so long. I'm never going to get through this, but you know what? I've taken up the charge. You've been helping me hunt down some of these films. I got a list going on Criterion, and... I, out of this whole list of 264, because of ties, there's 264 movies on this list. I, to date, have seen uh, 200 and like three of them. Okay, so that we're getting there. We're getting there, but I've got, (laughs) I'm up to like 100 and... I've seen the top 111 movies, and I'm in progress of number 112, which is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And then after that, we'll jump all the way to 137, because I've seen all the ones in between. So, I mean, I'm really, I've really done the homework so that we could have a conversation yeah. and I could answer any question you have about what's good, what's not good, and anything in between. Okay. And I, yeah, I've, I mean, we're just going to keep talking about this for a while, because uh, when you're done with the 250, we'll come back and do another show on that. Okay, so I got I got a couple of dumb questions. That's all right. There's no dumb question here. Why is Shawshank Redemption not on this list? I think that's a setup question. You're, you're setting up as the difference between, like, A, if you're talking about just American films and you're talking about popular American films, yeah. that movie, like, so if the AFI had done another um, 100 list, yeah. right? They've done those in the past of American films. Yeah. My guess is you're going to find... Shawshank Redemption, high up there. Okay. But it's not even on the 250. This is why that question of what makes a film great. Like why is, if, if that if that is really so many people's favorite movie, and it is a movie I've seen at least 10 times because my kids love it now too. Well, and, and the reason I asked is because it's the number one movie on IMDb. I mean, it's a life-affirming story. It's great. Yeah. And there's no reason why it really shouldn't be on there um, other than the fact that when you uh, – uh, some of these critics and stuff, there are definite biases. One of the things that I've noticed, because I've seen so many of this 250 list, there is an inordinate amount of movies from either France or French-adjacent um, right. or French-speaking countries that tell me that a huge amount of – of the critics and scholars on this list are somehow they're French or French associated because like, if you watch some of them, there's not anything that's so extraordinary about them that you'd ever imagine them being on a list of the greatest. Right. But there are a number of American studio films in the 250, like Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Right. But they're also, again, there's this weird, you know, knowing these critics and their quirks, they have a, a, a penchant. And maybe it's all foreign critics that are putting it over the top yeah. for Westerns. Somehow there's this an, an idea that Westerns oh, represent okay. American film. I mean, if you think about it, Hitchcock, right? He gets yeah. a lot of appearances. Now, he's not even American. He's British. But the movies that are on here are American productions. No, we'll take him. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, we're, the right. UK can't have Kubrick, but we're keeping Hitchcock. Yeah, I mean, if we look at this 250, right, so Chantel Ackerman gets three slots, two yeah. of them in the hundred, uh, John Delmon, and then this other movie called News From Home, and then her first film, this black and white film called uh, Je Tu Il L, which means I, you, sh- he, she. Yes. And I've watched all three, okay? Yes. 
and they don't get any better. Um, I am actually of the opinion that I actually, I know this may, I haven't seen all our movies. I've seen these three, but based on these three, I controversially will say that I don't think as a filmmaker, Chantal Ackerman was very good. She is a very specific type of filmmaker. Right. She's interested in a certain way of filmmaking. Uh, strong visuals is not her strong suit. Okay. Uh, good, good, good camera lighting is not her strong suit. Good sound is not her strong suit. <laughs> Script writing's not her strong suit. <laughs> it's literally pointing a camera and sometimes narration or sometimes some dialogue. And it's a lot of just watching and observing. And that's just, she's more of an observer. Now, that does appeal a little bit. And I will right. tell you that out of the three, the one I found the most intriguing and the one that I would say that you might enjoy is News From Home. Okay. But when you watch this movie, all you're going to get is pretty much static shots of locations in New York City at a certain time and place in 1975 with occasional narration, which is interesting is that she spent some time in the early 70s in New York, probably trying to make it as a filmmaker or something. And she was away from home. She's very attached to her mom and her mom was very attached to her. And her mom would write these letters constantly and they were kind of nagging letters uh-huh. And they would always say that, like, it would tell how her life was going and how her husband's life was going and what well, things weren't going this good with the store or this or that. Right. And also, we don't hear enough from you. And I hope everything's great. You're making some friends. And, like, do you, here's a, here's a, a couple of francs, and, uh, but we can't <laughs> send you any more money. And it, it, But it's, like, almost the same thing over and over. Oh, wow. Okay. However, what you start to get the picture of, since she, she went back to New York later to film this, you get these locations and what they are and what they represent are places that she used to go to or walk to or walk near where she lived. And she kind of places the narration that she reads these letters from her mom over those scenes. And so you can kind of start to imagine like when she was receiving this letter, this might've been where she was at or going through at that time. Plus, I think it's fascinating whenever you get real-life shots of a city in a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore. So this is interesting because listening to you describe this, I do think I might like this. I can see why people might think this is great. and But it also th- it makes me think that in terms of this defining great uh, or or sort of what the qualities are for this list is that there's something about uh, these films, a lot of them, not all of them. Listening to you describe this film, I think I've never seen that movie before. Yeah, but I think there's a reason because after that, people are like, yeah, I would never. Why would you make a movie right. like this? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, there, there is that side of it too. But I think I think to some extent, some uh, for some of these, I think they get weighted a little bit because they're unique or because they're singular or because they break the form or do something different. And, you know, I feel like I experience this sometimes, too, and I think critics do, where you get kind of exhausted with all the marvelization of everything. And so you see, you know, one of these films and you go, oh, such a relief that it's not just the same tired formula over and over again at all. Yeah, but I still feel like that they were like that this only makes these lists because they're feeling like, well, we got to find some women filmmakers. And I guess I get, right. I get angry where, when I look at, uh, you know, the, when we talk about the lack of uh, women filmmakers that they can even choose from in their films. Right. To me, when I think of great, 
this list kind of if we're if we're going for inclusion in women, the greatest film that I've ever watched that was directed by a woman, I watched in the past year, and it's a mind blower. Yeah. And it's but it's also very hard to watch stuff. It's not easy, and that's Seven Beauties by Lena Wertmuller. And she's the first filmmaker of a, to be a woman to get an Oscar nomination for best yeah. director, and. This movie seemingly is forgotten. It's not on the 250. And it's an absolute masterpiece. It's ridiculous that it's not on the 250. And I see a film like News from Home make the top 100. And then I think of that. And that's where my mind goes. And it's the same thing where when we talk about black filmmakers, there's a dearth of black filmmakers. And there's a few represented here, several from other countries. But then to me, the greatest film the most important one if we're even putting that as a criteria for greatness audacious daring change the paradigm um it was actually a box office hit and it it disrupted the industry yeah is melvin van peebles sweet sweetback's badass song and it is a tough movie to watch again not comfortable for white people to watch it it's an indictment of white society and how they treated black people why is that not on this list because to me it's on my 100 Right, but it's somehow because it's entertainment or it's, you know, black exploitation is kind of considered. Have you actually seen this movie? Because yeah. it's not, it's really, I mean, it got part of the black exploitation movement, but it's really, I don't know, we call it an entertaining movie, but. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily have the critical cachet. It's weird because they showed it in film school when I was going yeah, there, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And um, maybe just the French haven't discovered it yet. And well, that's I, what I feel know, like. Go, I mean, like, you know, I feel like the French are... are but the, the French kind of invented film criticism. Yes, because we had a certain type of criticism. They they actually, like, right, took an intellectual approach. Yeah, and, and so because of that, because they were the ones disseminating that kind of critical material, they had an outsized influence on in terms of globally what was uh considered critically acceptable or or celebrated and you know what when we actually get this list and i get to see what the who these people were and what they picked yeah i am going to look some of these people up and i'm i'm, I'm going to look i'm looking for the right person like this a critic that might uh, I, the, my suspicions are that there are certain culprits that they picked a certain list of films and you'll see right. them prop up i'm hoping that we can get one of these people on our show I would love that. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of films here that I would put on my top 100, but I wouldn't put on my top 10. And so if I was asked to make a top 10, like, you know, I don't know. Well, I wonder, though, if everybody really did that, would we even have 100 movies? That's, I guess, that's that's the thing. And I don't think we would. And that's the other thing we should mention is that uh, you and I, uh, since this list came out, have been putting together our own top 100 list yeah and i think i kind of like we've been kind of grouping that together on a shared thing that we have and i've been kind of stopped once i got to the 250 because i'm like i gotta do more work right but we're but we're sort of fiddling with those and thinking about and you know i had i i honestly i had a little trouble getting to 100 i didn't but not a lot of trouble but well it's tough because it's like you you feel like you're pit you're like you know you're pinning yourself down into a list yes exactly yeah uh, so I'm still fiddling with my list. Okay, so one f- one more film that I'm gonna uh, from from the standard audience perspective. Yeah, why is Schindler's List not on this list? You're bringing up some good questions. Okay, this is an interesting 
uh, thing that you mentioned because it's not on. I don't know whether or not if they showed a 250 of the director's list, right. what, if it would have popped up, but they only gave us the 100, which is like, I think it came out to like 104 movies. But, uh, you know, I noticed something that, again, as I look at themes through this 100 and now, yeah. you know, now the deeper 250, these critics, for some reason, and I actually have a suspicion based on a movie I watched on this list, they don't like to touch war movies in the Holocaust. Unless it's a documentary. Unless it's a documentary and maybe even more specifically like something of like, again, if it's French. So there's right. a movie that uh, that both of us saw, uh, Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped. Yes. Um, and this is one of those movies and this is the reason why I went on this endeavor. I wanted to find the movies that blew me away. Yes. And A Man Escaped absolutely floored the F out of me. <laughs> and, and just coincidentally, I had watched it for something else, right? Because we were doing the fascist stuff. We were doing the fascism stuff. And so that kind of just came up on the list. And so I had watched it for that and was blown away by it. Going back to that question. So yeah. this is interesting. One of the films on this list, the, the one out of the top 100 that I find the absolute most ridiculous yeah. pick, and I think by default it shouldn't be on there anyway, is number 87, is yeah. Jean-Luc Godard's Histories du Cinema. <laughs> now... Now, now you actually watched that. Okay, so here's the thing. Well, because I got, I'm a completionist. Yeah. So, this movie was the hardest to find out of everything. It is not a film that was a theater film. It, it's it, it was several parts documentary that he put out for like French television. Yeah. And he had done a couple episodes in the late '80s, and then he went ten years later and did some in the '90s. And it's basically a film essay, right? And it's a weirdest film essay ever. Uh, so I said, "F it, I got it on uh, DVD." Is what you can find <laughs> it on, right? And yeah. I watched all four parts or whatever, or eight, six, eight parts. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's six or eight parts. Yeah, because there's part one, part one, part one, part two. Yeah. yeah. So there's like, say, eight parts, but the whole thing is like four and a half hours. The good news is that these episodes, you know, are relatively short. So right. you can watch them at one at a time. But man, like, you got to give me a medal for watching this fucking thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's terrible. And that's the thing is, is that like, it's not, I mean, there's other Jean-Luc Gardard movies and they've got a lot of them on here yeah. that are better than this. And, and and what I'm suspicious about is when I see it, 86 is um, Perot Le Fou. Yeah. And then at 87 is Jean-Luc Godard. I can see that, you know, several critics or whatever are putting them list and they're just throwing on a bunch of Godard movies and that's why they're back to back there. Right. Pierre LeFou is far better than History's Du Cinema. Uh, but other films that I saw when we did our Godard special also were better. Right. This film, does ju it just, it doesn't belong in this list for many reasons. So I watched the first 10 minutes of it. It's all, that, that'll tell you everything. And that was way more than I needed. And, but I thought, okay, this is similar to the kind of thing he's doing in the image book. Right. Yeah, that was maybe is more updated with the better technology. Exactly. But also, the image book is short. <laughs> I, th I think it's under 90 minutes. Uh, it's an interesting experience. And I enjoyed it for the just strange experience of it. But it, 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 I would put that at number 87 before I put Histories to Cinema. Because Histories to Cinema is unwatchable. 
Well, I watched it, and and I, and I did lose interest at times, and there were some interesting parts, but I just. But the problem is, is that like all the clips, and it's funny, tons of these clips are uh, like I had seen now enough of these movies. I'd seen almost all the hundred, and you start to see tons of these films that you can tell the French really loved. Yeah, are show up in this now. The thing is, there's a statement that he makes about the Holocaust, and he feels like yes. cinema, all of cinema betrayed mankind by yes. not somehow representing the Holocaust as it was happening or doing or, or using its powers to help stop it. Right. Well, and yeah, I mean, it, it, Godard has a lot of thoughts on cinema and the Holocaust. One is that it shouldn't be depicted. Right. And he does say something in Histories to Cinema about Schindler's List, but I think he views it as like this play and that it can't and that like nothing can represent the Holocaust. I think that's where a film like Shoah, which doesn't show the Holocaust at all, but is basically um, historical interviews right. with people who went through it, is more powerful. How, however, though, there's another omission in this entire list of 250, and it shows you the French influence, is one of the most powerful documentaries about the Holocaust is The Sorrow and the Pity. Yes. But it takes a harsh look at, at the France's French. role, yes. and so they don't <laughs> like the way that they were portrayed in it. Um, but I think that's, again, it's why things like Schindler's List, but it's not just that. I mean, anything like, uh, you know, even Well, like, Seven Beauties. Do you think Seven Beauties is not on the list because of this? I think it has something to do with it. Another film that is takes a very dark look at World War II and the goings-ons is, uh, and this is in the director's list. It's nowhere near, it's nowhere in the 250 is yeah. uh, is is Solo. 100 Days of Sodom. Right. And that, okay, that's interesting because, yeah, another film about fascism. So I find that things like these things that have difficult subject matter, and I'm thinking like Sweet Sweet Back, I mean, it, yeah. I think that it would be hard for today's today's kids to be able to watch that in film school. Right. But they're perfectly fine watching Jean Dillemont. Jean Dillemont. <laughs> How do you say it? Jean Dillemont. Which, by the way, again, right? Ackerman, she's Brussels. She speaks French, right? Uh, or she spoke French. And, and, and again, it's just you know, again, there's like these these biases. I see so many yeah. of these films, and that there all seems to be the the best history of France, um, <laughs> including this one movie that was like so high up, and it's been up high up for decades. This movie La Lante from nineteen thirty. Oh yeah, yeah. You watch this film. You tell me why it's great. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, okay. So some of these you're going to challenge me on, and so oh, that was my question. If you watch a film like this. And you're and you're like what 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 is going on here? Do you go and read reviews and try to figure out what people were thinking? Yeah, I think again, I, I think there's like you know, again, the, a lot of I think critics were using this as their own version of like the AFI's top 100 American films, but it was like <laughs> how many French films can we like cram in here? Um, you know, and then not that, but see again, the rewards are some of these movies on their own. They're worthwhile watching. Some of them right. are great. I saw some films that I don't know if I could put them in my, my greatest 100, but man, there's some films that I'm so glad I saw because when I get through this challenge, I'm going to go back and experience more from these directors. So uh, I'm really learning. Like the, there's these two films that are in the top 100, and I don't know why I, I it took me a while to get to them, but one is Agetsu and the other one's Sancho the Bailiff, both by the yeah. same director. You go want to see good movies. You got to freaking watch these things. They'll blow you away. 
And they're both in the top 100. They are. And I am not saying that I, I can't say I would put them in my 100 or not. Right. But I mean, I have no problem with people liking them because these things are freaking amazing, amazing masterpieces. And you didn't know that much about them before this, right? There's a lot of films I didn't know much about. Right. So, so give me a few of those. What are films that you didn't know about that blew you away? Well, there's one film and I tried to watch it a while ago. And I got through like 20 minutes. And again, I don't know, just mood wise, it's like, oh, Criterion, unless, you know, it's, it's always going to be there for me, right? Right. And you had somebody, uh, a friend of yours, that swore up and down this was one of the best films of all yes. time. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Well, all right. And, and it was four hours long. And I and I have a yeah. problem with like a movie that's four hours long that people expect to watch. And now it has to be the greatest. Great. Now I'm going to have to watch it. Um, and I also, I didn't fall in love with this other film by this director. Oh, uh, that's okay. also in the top 100. This uh, director is Edward Yang. He, he's, he's passed away. Taiwanese yeah. filmmaker. And he made this film called Yi Yi in 1999. Yes. And that's regarded as one of the greatest films of the last like 20 something years. I thought it was very interesting. I just didn't didn't love it. So I wasn't so keen on watching A Brighter Summer Day. And that's the four-hour one. And it's and it's yeah. kind of... Now, it's not really based on his childhood, but it's based on experiences of kind of growing up in Taiwan in the early 60s. And okay. a lot that was going on with, like, you know, China had sent a bunch of, of people over to Taiwan. Yeah. And there were a lot of refugees. And there was, like, a whole nationalist thing going on in Taiwan and a lot of suspicion and, uh, you know, secret police and other shit going on. This movie encapsulates a ton of that stuff in the background of a story oh, of, of a one okay. family. Um, by the time I finished with this brighter summer's day, I was absolutely blown away. I think it's one of film's greatest masterpieces. It's got to be in my top 20 of all time. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a right. movie that literally knocks, knocks other films out of the way and right. goes into my own after watching it. This movie, there's so many things going on, and I don't want you to know too much about it going yeah, in. Yeah, don't. I'm going to watch it before the next show, and we'll talk about it in more detail then. It really is a mind blower. Um, it, it's just because it's so rich, and there's so many things that are built into the movie that pay off throughout. Yeah. And then there's just some devastating, but really what I loved about it, and, and it does remind me of Yi in this, and this was Edward Yang's film style. Yeah. When I watched these American films, and one of the biggest problems that I had when I watched like The Woman King is everything shot on a steady cam. And when I mean by that, that's great for these fluid shots. I mean, steady cam sure. can do a yeah, lot of no, cool things. Yeah, no, if you're things. doing a moving shot, but if you're just doing what should be a static shot watch these marvel movies and other things and this is something that happens a lot on tv shows because they're shooting fast and trying to cheat it's different with tv i feel like you see these steady cam because it's all digital right you're seeing a, mo a shot that should be still but it was shot with a steady cam and you watch it move up and down yes and that's different from somebody shooting like a very dynamic handheld movie back in the totally day totally different yeah it, it distracts me. It says that, wow, the director has no vision. That's what I, when I see that, I go, the me director too. doesn't really have a visual style. Because you're the edges of your fr frame are floating around, right? Yep. Like you can't choose a composition. And, and maybe there's reasons for that, etc. But when I see something like Brighter Summer Day, you watched very long shots, not as long yeah. as uh, one of the other filmmakers on here, Bellatar, but <laughs> um, you see very long shots 
And what it is, is like, and again, it's a four hour movie. And so he's letting time play out differently. Right. And there's a lot of examination of what's going on. And there's a lot of long shots and long shots, not a widescreen movie, but like long shots within, you know, a one, eight, five film where you have everything framed. And it's interesting to see characters that are not just in your face at a medium or a close up. And you sometimes you're set. Sometimes they're, they're inside a house, let's say. Right. And you're looking from a long distance. You have the mic inside. lit inside but now you have like it's like a framing device you have them then you'll have the exterior and you have like a little bit of nature in front of it and so it's a different way of depth and experiencing and sometimes then the camera will move in ever so slightly changes from long to medium right these are things that i feel like real filmmakers seem to know how to do and you get this amazing display of composition and films in these uh top 250 can't wait to see it yeah so that's fantastic okay so that so that one is like i said that one just blew me away because while it took me a while to get into it once i got into it it was one of those i just zoom through and and that's kind of what's wonderful about i mean th- this is sort of what we're looking for in general anyway you know when we find that one that's just like wow you know like with a special day was one that we found last fall and we both just were blown yeah, not away on the 250 it. not on the 250 totally should be a lot better than a lot of these movies yeah i mean there's a lot of filmmakers that don't have i mean for for for, for f's sake right greatest yeah. films i'm sorry but in the 250 if you can't find room for fargo yeah, so that's, I mean, I, I have a list of these, actually, that I, I'm, you know, why shouldn't they be on? Uh, but part of that is, you know, I keep thinking of my parents and, or, you know, <laughs> my sister, say, who likes movies, but isn't, you know, uh, a, a geek like us. And I, I'm not going to say, go watch these top 10 movies. I mean, she'd like quite a few of them. But um, a lot, of, I think, you know, a list like this, I understand why people hate critics. Even like movies like, I'll say close up, right? Yeah. If if it was one of our other themes and like we said, we heard about this Abbas Kiarostrami guy. Yeah. Let's do a whole bunch of his movies. We would have some great fun talking about it because because of this list, I got to see two other films yes. of his. Um, they're, they're not in the top 100, but they're like just outside of it. They're in yeah. the next batch. And one of those is A Taste of Cherry. And the other is Where is the Friend's House? And- When you start to see a director and you see several of his things, you start to see the things that he does all the time, his approach. And while Close Up, I really liked. And Taste of Cherry, I liked a lot, but it was clear since he was doing this whole kind of exercise and improv. He ran out of story at the end and didn't know how to end it, so it ends in a weird way. And that killed it for me. Other than that, I thought it was almost a masterpiece. However, where is the friend's house? Absolutely blew me away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just okay. i mean that movie floored me it's really short and it's just a great masterful little story great storytelling and unlike a lot of films that just don't know how to end yeah this guy he created an ending that when it happened 
I literally pumped my fist in the air and said, oh, yes. Wow. And he's like, that's how you end a movie. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so, yeah, so this, I mean, again, this is what's great about doing this is there's a few you have to suffer through here and there, uh, but there's also some absolute gems. And, and now here's a director that we're going to go and f- watch more of his films. If I wasn't on this major quest, yeah, I would probably have fallen down a rabbit hole of Kiristami because uh, Criterion's been offering up a bunch of his stuff. Yeah, so we will do that at some point. I'm very excited about that. Well, I think that's what happens is if you start to get into some of these things, you may say, okay, I'd like to do something on this and then we'll yes. watch more because uh, the other guy, I mean, famous, famous. And I'd never, I'd watched chunks of his movies, but never all the way through and until this exercise yeah. was uh, Ozu. Yeah. I watched Tokyo Story and then his other film that's in the top 22, Late Spring. Yeah. Um, these movies absolutely blew me away. Fantastic. Like yeah. Tokyo Story, it's hard to explain. Like that's the thing, it would be hard to explain because I could see somebody else watch it and go, what? But by the end of that movie, I just, because it's a film that not only I like the technique that he uses in his framing and like the positioning of his camera and that the the way the actors talk directly into the, the camera and he, he breaks the 180 rule and he creates his own right. style. But the, there's so much that your brain is thinking about with these characters. And there are little bits that you get to hear in, in baked into the story where these are characters that are, you know, 10 years out of or less out of World War II. And I'm always fascinated in getting the Japanese yeah, perspective. Absolutely. There's loss in these families. They've had people that, uh, in Tokyo Story, yeah. there's a daughter-in-law who tends to be the most sympathetic, empathetic, and caring of these two parents. And she's the daughter-in-law and hasn't remarried. Her, son, her, her husband was their son, was lost during the war. He was killed. Right. And these aren't things that are front and center. They're little things. They're just part of the fabric of, yeah. Well, you, you look at these parents and you think their experience, where they're at now, all that they went through, these are people that lived through the war. They were not participants. Right. And then you see like their how their kids have handled and how they want, you know, like Tokyo is now becoming a major metropolis. Right. And it's like how these kids want a faster life than their parents wanted. And then there's a lot of that that's also in a kind of a companion piece, which is the late spring. But in late spring, there's this very interesting dynamic between the father and this daughter mm-hmm. and that the mom is gone. It, it also tends to seem that there was real hardships during the war. And that might have played a part in the mother's demise. You mean that, that people who were okay. just civilians had terrible things they went through. Um, and that you get indications that the father might have been a heavy drinker at one point, And this daughter doesn't want to seem to leave the father. But then there's these weird currents and Ozu, it was always a mystery whether Ozu was gay or not. Okay. Oh, interesting. His yeah. leading actress, and, and it escapes me now because we weren't we're, we weren't going to specifically talk about any one movie, so I didn't go do a lot of stuff on there. She's probably one of the most amazing, beautiful actresses I've ever seen. And she is mesmerizing. But there's this undercurrent of, is there some kind of weird like love that this girl has for her father that makes her not want to leave and get married? Or right. 
in an even more unspoken, and I think it's more apparent today, is the daughter actually a lesbian in a society where she could never, ever say she was a lesbian? Oh, oh, fascinating. Okay. Wow. And the fact is that there's a lot of questions as to whether this actress herself was a lesbian. She never got married, never had a family. She retired after Ozu died. She made his her last film with him. He died, and then she immediately stopped acting, said she really never liked acting anyway. And, and, and her fan, she was like loved in Japan wow. and she just went retired. So there's a ton of mystery in the backstory of just the yeah. makings of these movies, but there's just so much going on. And then again, his command of film language that right. I just love these movies. And I just, it's so great to now have those. And there's a third film, which is in the uh, 250, which I'm going to watch. Yeah. Um, and it's one of these things where you'd think I'd want to watch that right away, but somehow I'm like savoring it for when I want to really watch something that I know I'm going to love. Right. Because you know that you have a few that you have to uh, struggle through to get there. Yeah. Well, we don't have, look, we don't have a lot of time now. So I, 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 if there's other questions you're, you're burning for, let's, let's hit some of those. Well, I got tons of them. Uh, uh, we could keep going on this uh, diamonds you discovered. So I would love to keep going on. Well, the, whatever you want to talk about. I also want to know, uh, just give me one or two films that not for not because they're politi- uh, films that just aren't that good that are on this list that that are that are just you know they're not that important they they don't even have a political purpose they're just not very good they're kind of like what's just not up to snuff here you know again subjective right one of them this is my one though the one that i i I found it's only an hour and 15 minutes but the out of all these films that i've seen some long ones okay i saw uh one film satan tango and i thought that was going to be my white whale i thought that was going to be the longest hardest movie i was going to have to watch that's a seven hour film by uh director (laughs) bellatar and i didn't watch it in one fell swoop i'll tell you that i watched it over a series of uh over a couple of weeks i watched chunks at a time um i actually kind of enjoyed that in a weird way it's not for everybody i'll just tell you that but I had an easier time watching that than the hour and 15 minutes of this avant-garde experimental film, which I really, it, it, to me, it felt like a film school movie, movie that you'd make <laughs> in film school. It's this film called Daisies. Okay. And I think it's a Czechoslovakian. It's a female filmmaker. And, you know, it was, I guess, important at the time because it was viewed more of as like a, this feminist statement against the oppressive society of Czechoslovakia. And what been, year? Uh, it was like 68, 67. Okay, maybe. so yeah, yeah, right right in the middle of that, yeah. And and it had been banned, of course, because it was, you know, wanton, bad behavior. And it's essentially this weird mashup of these two young girls who decide that they want to be bad. And they basically go out on dates with men who they get them to buy them all this food and they kind of pig out and eat and then they leave them uh, at the train when the guys think that they're going to go back with them and they do right. all these other goofy things and it feels very much made up the entire movie uh, film stocks go in and out from like black and white to like vivid chrome color and uh, other things and it, it is i guess a little bit playful but there's just no real point to the movie and a lot of times the two actresses look like they're doing things that behind this camera the director's just saying do this do that 
And it really just didn't, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Okay, so and so it may have a, a tiny little piece in Czechoslovakian film history, but it doesn't necessarily need to be on the world stage is what you're saying. Well, and it also, I mean, I think in recent years, it really didn't get much play in the United States. And it's only been, you know, I think digital restorations have helped yeah. a lot of films come into the uh you know, the spotlight and make their way through revival houses. And I think Daisies is one of those. Uh, okay. Another thing is the Jap, it's not on this list, but the Japanese film Hauzu, it is so bizarre and absurd. Yes. But it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't seen in America for years until restoration happened. And now, you know, in the last, say, decade or so, people have discovered it. Yeah, and so, and it, digital restoration is so different. You know, when I saw, first saw not first saw, but the restoration of Vertigo was sometime in the late 90s. Yeah, that was amazing. And it was amazing, but it was not digital. No, no. And it's so much easier now with digital to, uh, you know, I was thinking about A Special Day, again, which has this really specific kind of uh, film processing. You just couldn't achieve it without digital. And, and you know, seeing some of these films... I can imagine if, like, I had been totally, you know, a better film 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 watcher yeah. and sought out some stuff um, when I could have seen some of these movies in like the eighties and nineties. What the prints might have looked like? They might look terrible. Yeah. So, you I mean I am fortunate that we can? Okay. See so, good daisies. Stuff. Give me another one of these. That <sighs> one that really kind of bothered me, just because it's it, it's like I couldn't even see anything great about it. Yeah is this thing Journey to Italy. Okay, yeah. I don't know much about it. I think it's a Rossellini movie. Okay. And it's got, you know, Ingrid Bergman, and it's got uh, Sanders. He killed himself a few years after. (laughs) That's how you remember. I'm blanking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He plays her husband, and they they, they go on this, they're like, uh, go on this trip to Italy to like, he inherited some house and they're kind of examining it to see if they're going to sell it. And their marriage is kind of crumbling and they spend, you know, a lot of time apart and she kind of visits like historic sites. And you see that there's like, they're really two different types of people. Not much happens. And I, and I actually think it was a little chauvinistic and he's a real dick. And I can see why huh. she wouldn't want to be with him. And yet somehow they find that they kind of love each other at the end. And I really just didn't see where the, where the love for this movie was. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so it's just not, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's completely awful. So do you, is this one where you went and looked up critics and said, what What the heck's going on? I, I, yeah, just as much. And I couldn't see anything of why people think it's that good. I think I think there are certain, <laughs> there's a certain group of, of people, probably a, a group of scholars and critics that are like hooked on Turner Classic Movies. And <laughs> and whenever movies like this come on, this is like their idea of cinema. You know, when I, right. way back uh, in the late 90s, I worked one summer at this video production company. Yeah. Um, and it was all industrial stuff. But uh, I worked across a desk from somebody who, who, she was a real character and she didn't do a lot of work. I ended up doing all the work. She was on the phone <laughs> yelling at her mom at the time. But she loved movies and she wanted event like her her dream was to be a film restorationist oh and okay the thing was she had this weirdest take on films she didn't think that there was a single good movie that was made after like 1960 <laughs> and 
she loved old films. Um, which, by the way, that brings up another thing. This is really crazy. I don't even think it's in the top 250 of the critics. The directors gave it number 70. But Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, that's bizarre. And I think that this is where, you know, generations of film critics, the young, the younger critics, a lot of them poo-poo thinking, oh, these are those big, boring films that my right. parents liked. I never saw it. And, of course, there's a new bias that what makes Lawrence of Arabia great is the visual. If you see it on a big screen, yeah. it's a visual uh, masterpiece. And also... It's one of the great acting performances. Yes, I, I was just going to, yeah. However, it's undeniable, especially now, we're very critical of the white savior. Yes. And I think that's where it gets uh, points against it because it's not a very, there's no women in the movie. It's, right. It, 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 it's now, it's complicated in this context, but I, I would have to say that T.E. Lawrence was always controversial for exactly that reason. <laughs> yeah. And so, it, it, like, it, it, this has been a conversation going on about him as a person for decades. And the movie, I mean, it's debatable whether the movie is a celebration of him or, I mean, I, I feel like it's a pretty complex uh, view at his character and who he is. Yeah, I mean, he has his rise, but he also kind of has his fall. So. And, and he's he's not a perfect hero kind of character. He's he's vain. He's egotistical. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of movies in this 250 that didn't make the 100. But when you get to look at the 250 movies, you're like, why isn't this here or that there? Right. They're in the they're in the next group. So like films that didn't make the top 100, but you'll see in the next hundred is like Jaws, Godfather Part Two, right. Wizard of Oz, which I think is insane. Isn't isn't like high up on the top 100? Right. Touch of Evil, uh, Women Under the Influence, Nashville, Don't Look Now, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, yeah. Carpenter's The Thing, There Will Be Blood. Uh, those kind of movies are in the next 100. So, I mean, there are some interesting choices, but I feel like the really good, so like movies to me that I think are are, are much greater than yeah. News From Home is Pulp Fiction. That's 132 on the list. I think it should be in the top 100. Is there anything that's not in the top 250? Aside from Seven Beauties, that you think should be there, I think E.T. Okay, great choice. Yeah, that's that E.T. I think is again. This is to me when when you think of critics, I think that that is a movie that isn't just a popular film. I feel like yes, it was extremely popular, but it also achieves greatness in many ways. And so, what do you if <laughs> if you could trade one out for E.T., what would it be? I mean, you'd take your, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm going to pick a movie that you asked about things that I just didn't think was very good. Yeah. And I show, I think it also shows a lot of biases. Um, there are not a lot of animated films on here. Yes. However, the three animated films that show up in the entire 250, two of them in the top 100, yeah. are anime movies. Um, yes. And one is The Grave of Fireflies, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm going to watch. Then there are two Miyazaki movies. The famous one there. My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away. And Spirited Away. Now, Spirited Away, you know, I, anime, I've already gone on record. It's not my favorite genre. Yeah. I got through it and I found some things were enjoyable, but I also felt like somewhat of a ripoff of Wizard of Oz. And it bothered me that a movie like Wizard of Oz, which is, um, you know, right. influenced generations of people. That's not in the top 100, but this film, which I mean, I'm just, look, this is just me. I, I, I like 
the drawings, yeah. but I don't think it's that great of animation because in anime, they don't do 24 frames per second. It's, right. It's a little bit of a cheat, and I don't think it's that great, and I don't think the story is that great. But the one that really bothered was my neighbor Totoro. I didn't even think it was a good kids movie. Right. I thought it was crappy. So you would be okay with uh, uh, Spirited Away being in the 250 maybe? Well, I mean, I don't like it, but I get people are. But yeah, I don't want it in the top 100. But if people have to insist, fine. But but Totoro, you're having none of that. I'm having none of that. And then especially <laughs> when I think of like Disney. I mean, Disney is animation. And I know people have problems because some of them, there's, yeah. a, there's something problematic about everyone. Yeah. But the artistry. And so, you know, the one that I think is the most artistic is Fantasia. Yeah. And I really think that that should be on this list somewhere. Um, and the most controversial character in Fantasia had been removed years ago. So Right. So I think Totoro is actually a good trade for E.T. They're very similar stories, actually. Yeah, right. And that's why I feel like, yes, <laughs> yes, that is in a weird way. It's the kid and they and they need a character. And so, yeah, I, I think the ones I don't like, I would trade in. Like, there's this other one that, uh, I, it's funny, I'm recommending you watch it. Yeah, but it's also a filmmaker. I like the idea that this, you know, the 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 industry. There was no film industry here. A guy like got him, got a, got a camera and some money, and this film called Tuki Buki. Yes, and it's basically like a Senegalese uh, Breathless, right? That's the closest okay. comparison. There's some interesting stuff when you get somebody who who's not trained in film. Yeah, sometimes they create they create scenes and ideas and stuff. They put things together in a way that nobody else would. And that's interesting. Yeah. And so it's definitely worthwhile watching. So I'm glad it made it to the list so I could watch it. But I didn't think that this should be anywhere near the top 100. And if I was going to put a film like I, the close comparison, but of course it wasn't a black filmmaker and maybe that's why, but I think very influential and should be on the top 50 is uh the harder they come yeah okay great movie yeah you know okay so so we're getting short on time so i got a couple final questions sure okay i want you to give me two good movies that i need to watch before the next episode there there's just so many i mean i don't want to i don't want to saddle you with long but obviously brighter summer no no no. i know that's fine i i i think that i've got to put um brighter summer day on on this yeah i mean that and then the film of course i just watched and it's in the 250 but it blew me away is a touch of zen that's just going to be like entertainment if you want great entertainment you got to watch that and yeah well okay but i want one from the top 100 all right well then i think you know it's number four and if you haven't seen it really you know you should see tokyo story but then you're going to want to watch late spring after that or you want to watch late spring first and then tokyo story because late spring comes first oh okay yeah and i didn't watch it that way but maybe that would be a better is watch late spring and then watch tokyo story Okay, so I can watch those three. Now I want a challenge. I want a movie that is going to test my resolve. <laughs> it's, this is what I personally would... Look, at you You already want to watch it, so I would say that Satan Tango, but you're going to like wanna, You're going to want to go through that. I'm going to want to go through it, and I'm going to like it. But so. I'm going to give you something that's going to give you the exact same length of Satan Tango, but it's two movies. And they're, and they're definitely related in many ways. And one would be to watch Celine and, jo- and Julie go boating. 
Okay. The Jacques Rivette film. And uh-huh. then you have to watch The Mother and the Whore. Oh, man. Okay. Because I had to watch them. <laughs> and, and like, they're watchable. They are watchable. But when you watch them, you're going to be thinking, how could, th- how could these be put on the, best, the greatest films of all time? Um, because, to me, this is really weird, is that, when a film is great, apparently critics don't care about, you know, bad lighting, bad sound, uh, acting that's maybe, you know, not always the greatest, um, tons of hairs on the gates. I mean, Chuki Buki, there's one scene where there's a big hair that's like on the screen so much that it's its own character. <laughs> like. But given the backstory of that, that's a little different. I know. But, th- right. but like Jacques Rivette, man, there wasn't, th- there's not a gate that he ever felt like cleaning, I don't think. Because <laughs> um, I'm now watching, he has this like insane eight part, 13 hour thing <laughs> called Out One. And oh, I'm yes, watching yes. it because it's on Canopy and I can get Canopy and I've finished half of them. I've watched four <laughs> episodes and it's it's really, it's not for very many people, I got to tell you, but I kind of <laughs> like it. And it was helpful watching Celine and Julie go boating because uh, one, of, one of his actors, his actress, uh, Juliette Berto, she was a muse of Godard. Oh, okay. And she was yeah. also a muse of, of Rivette. Interesting. And she isn't, I don't think, the greatest actress. But she does this. She ha, she kind of creates her own kind of character. She plays sort of a, the 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 gamine, which is like a character that's sort of like a a, a female like con artist. Okay. <laughs> and they have a that's what they call this character in uh, modern times with uh, Chaplin. With Chaplin, and that was yeah. one of those. You know, I have this. We didn't even get into the whole thing about. Uh, uh, oh, we're. Uh, a silent movies that yeah, I we're gonna had get, to that's, encounter. That's um, in the next episode. Because, yeah, in the next episode, we'll talk about some of your real challenges. But then within your challenges, right? So City Lights and the uh, Modern Times are the two that show up in the 100. And then he doesn't yeah. show up again. Like the gold rush has suddenly disappeared from the, the 250. But those are the two that they choose for Chaplin. And I thought City Lights had some moments, but I thought it was very repetitive. Yeah. And then comes along Modern Times, and that movie absolutely freaking blew me away. It is a masterpiece of acting and directing. And you don't like silent films, so that's high praise. It, it is, but he does something different. Is that this movie was like 1936 when sound yeah. had already been established, and he just wasn't going to do that. But that's okay. He did things where he has sound throughout the whole movie from a brilliant score that he wrote oh, to okay. sound effects. Right. And so the whole movie is a soundscape, but there's no but talking. But there's no dialogue. Except yeah. that there's okay. a fu- couple of funny parts. But when I watch, the part that I didn't like about silent movies a lot of times is the mugging and that overexpression yes. that was done. It's just a style that I don't even think it was appropriate for back then. Well, it was kind of vaudevillian. But yet when you watch what he does, he, he like... He finds such a way, like it was already getting refined at that point where a little bit more realistic acting from right. people. He, it, it's like the comic timing because he had to have figured this stuff out to make it work. And I, I can't explain it. If you watch it, there are stuff that goes on in modern times that not only is it like kind of getting away with stuff in the code times. Right. Because my 1936, I mean, it was already starting to get very rigid. It was probably shot pre-code though. Yeah, I don't know how it got. I mean, there's things I don't know how it got approved. And I think I got cut yeah. over the years, and then it got cut back for this. But I mean, first of all, it's it's 
beautiful print on, on Criterion. And it's just, I loved it. I just thought, wow. So, okay, you know, that's... it just shows you that a couple of things like that other one, I, I know we were running short on time, but like uh, the one that also blew me away and I re- think is one of the top 100 is um, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Okay, which I want to talk about next time. So. Okay, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of things we need so, to okay. talk about. Last last thing for our listeners. Give our listeners, you've given me some challenges, good, and, and, we, and a lot of recommendations. If, uh, say, out of the top 20 or 30, just recommendations that sort of would fit a broader audience you know you're watching oh, some of these and, going, <laughs> well, and mean, these can be ones you've seen before well that's what i'm looking at i mean so movies that i had already seen so that's why we didn't spend a lot of time talking about them but like i mean if people haven't seen taxi driver i mean that's something you gotta yeah. see i think portrait of lady on fire while it shouldn't belong in the top 30 it, it, it is a fantastic movie fantastic yeah. movie singing in the rain one of my favorites uh and it's certainly that's accessible i think to everybody yeah. Another movie that blew me away, I think it's definitely in the top 100 for me, is is uh, Igmar Bergman's Persona. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a super fan of it, and I think it's, again, we could do a whole theme on this weird obsession that these critics have with Westerns, but, man, The Searchers is something that I actually will say I don't, I, I find it very problematic. <laughs> well, you think? <laughs> well, I, yes, but I think that, what I think is that the reevaluation on it is that Critics want to believe that John Ford was making a comment on racism, and I don't think he was. I actually think that they, yeah. I don't think that they saw John Wayne's character the way that audiences came to see his character. Right. Okay. That's okay. So that's a whole other conversation which we'll get into. But for yeah. now, I got some films to watch for the next episode, and we will check in then. We'll find out some about your uh, desperate challenges. There's one in particular on the 250 that I want to find out more about. <laughs> yeah. From what I heard, the screen is just one color for the entire movie. We'll talk uh, about that more in the next episode. Well, I don't know how much we want to talk about. I can tell you about it now in two seconds. <laughs> no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes, no, yes, no. It's true. Uh, it, it, <laughs> the so, movie's called Blue. <laughs> it's, it's called it's, Blue. So we will get into all sorts of more uh, depth on the list and uh, really looking. I'm so glad you did this challenge, Jim, and it's fantastic. Uh, great way for me to discover some movies without having to go through all the crap. Well, like I said, this is this thing could lead us on so many paths. It's like a great building block for themes, and I feel like that's what's going to come out of it once you start seeing this stuff. Well, and I think that's the way for people to look at this list, too, is that this is not a definitive 100. This is a list that... The way I look at it is that this should inspire film watching, give you some things you haven't seen before, uh, give you some things to think about and talk about if you're into movies. But it's not like, you know, set in stone. Yeah, well, let's put it this way. I've seen so many of these French New Wave films now that I have to go get a lung (laughs) cancer screening from all the cigarette smoke. I mean, this movie, The Mother and the Whore, they must have smoked like 5,000 Okay, well, they, no, that's my challenge, right? That's one of my challenges. Okay. Yeah, but but I honestly, if you can only take one out of those two challenges, watch the Celine and Julie go boating because that's okay. in the top hunt. <laughs> I will do that and, first. And, but there's also a reason. And I, I, I keep in mind when people are like, well, what's this Julie and boating? Watch this movie and I want you to think of two films that okay. seem like they're somehow inspired uh, by this movie or inspire this movie you're going to watch this movie and i want you to think of persona and i want you to think of mulholland drive oh interesting okay yeah and so i'm not saying see i haven't really told you i I, do i think it was in the top 100 no but 
I there's just this movie, you know, it's one of the weirdest of the choices. There's something so bizarre going on in this movie. Okay. Can't wait to see it. All right. Until next time. All right, people. Have fun uh, watching stuff on the uh, BFI. <laughs> yeah. Try to take, see if you can uh, put Jim down before he gets to 250, if you can beat him. Yeah, I know. You see, that's the whole thing, right? People are probably like <laughs> wanting to rag on my comments, but you know what? Then they're like, shit, I didn't see all hundred. Well, well you know. here's the thing. I, you know, some of the, I can't, I can't defend a movie unless, you know, but a few of these, you said, watch them and let me know if I miss something. So, you know, that's, I, I would love, that's why I would love some opinions from people that like, if someone saw Jean Dalmont the whole way yeah. through and was like, this movie was great. Well, bring it on i want to know why okay good so so uh we'll talk about that next time we'll put together a little list for me uh of ones that you need some uh second opinions on yeah i mean i'd love for you to see it because like i don't care if i spoil the movie for for listeners but i don't want to spoil the movie for you and there is things about it that it, it, it kind of puts the whole film together and it would spoil it. And I don't want to spoil it. Okay. So, so yeah, we will, uh, we'll be talking about these uh, more in the next uh, two episodes. I think we're going to do on this. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to do them. Like, I don't think the next, we're not doing them right in a row. Yeah, yeah, Cause yeah. We, we got some other things we got to get to like the Oscars. Read uh, we do. Mm, we're going to spend a whole five minutes after. The oh, okay. That's about yeah. all I want to spend. <laughs> all right. Okay. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye everybody.